At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through this three-week series, we're turning to the biblical book of Isaiah to discover how God's holiness, forgiveness, and love compel us to share Him with others. We'll come face-to-face with whatever's keeping us from answering God's call as Isaiah did. Send me. Morning, church. It's good to be with you all. And... um... Looking forward to a lot of things coming up um, in the next several weeks, including Spring Serve, and uh, we're going to continue in worship as we open the scriptures this morning uh, to Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along there, if you crack it open right in the middle, turn a little bit to the right uh, from the Psalms, you'll see Isaiah pretty quickly, and we are in chapter 6. This chapter is really well known uh, because it is Isaiah's calling. Not only that, it is a very vivid passage of Scripture and incredibly powerful. The Lord reveals himself to Isaiah. We saw that last week, looking at verses 1 through 4, and we're going to see how he responds to this vision of the Lord today as we look at verses 5 through 7. And we chose this chapter to look at because we wanted to spend a few weeks coming out of Easter and focus on God's heart for the nations and God's calling, not just for Isaiah to speak God's word, but now for us who are in Christ, all of us, to bear witness to God's word, and is calling on our lives to preach the gospel to all nations. So we're looking at Isaiah's experience and seeing what we can learn from it for ourselves. All right, Isaiah chapter 6, I'm going to reread verses 1 through 4, but we're going to really focus today on verses 5 through 7. So brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of the Lord's robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one seraph called to another, And said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And the seraph touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was the summer of 1999. I had just finished seventh grade, and my parents signed me up for the Bowden Passing Academy. The Bowden Passing Academy. It was a three-day summer football camp at Troy State University. A legendary college football coach, Bobby Bowden, ran the camp with many other college football coaches from around the country. And you have to understand about the time, uh, about me at that time, 
that I was obsessed with playing football. It was my passion, my identity, and I was from a small town in South Alabama. So for that area, football was our number one religion by far. Our joy, our money, our hope, our focus is all geared toward football. And as a young man, I fell right in line with all of that. And I was a naive 13 or 14-year-old when I showed up at that camp. I had dreams of winning the Heisman and going pro, so I was very naive. And I'll never forget day one of the camp. I was leaving the dorm that I was staying in to head to the field for the first session or practice, and I came to the crest of a hill on campus approaching the stadium, and I was able to look down on the field. And what I saw made my eyes widen and my heart skip a beat. And I said to myself simply, whoa. Because down on that field were what seemed like thousands upon thousands of other guys just like me. Like I said, where I came from in my hometown, I was a big fish in a small pond, but seeing all those other guys who are aspiring quarterbacks just like me, all of a sudden I realized I am a small fish in a big pond. I am like a plankton in the ocean. Because of the size and scope of what I saw, I realized I am not the big shot I thought I was. Maybe you've had similar experiences while hiking in the mountains or sitting in the middle of the ocean or looking at pictures of outer space, standing in the presence of something so big, so awesome, so great that you get hit with a sudden dose of self-awareness. I am small. I am lowly. I am puny in comparison to this ocean or mountain or outer space. I mean, I am a blip by comparison. And my experience at camp and many of our experiences looking at creation, they are very much what Isaiah experiences here in the sixth chapter of his prophecy. In verses one through four, he describes this vision of God, and then immediately he sees himself in a whole new light. And so our main point for this morning is that seeing God enables us to see ourselves. In verse one, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. In verse 5, he says, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So seeing the Lord, the King, Jehovah, the powerful, transcendent, holy God, it causes Isaiah to instantly reconsider himself. And Isaiah's experience here isn't recorded for mere historical record, but it is recorded for us to learn from And to apply for ourselves. So as we unpack these verses, we're asking ourselves simply, how should we respond to who God is? How should we respond to a clear vision of who God is? And first, we learn from Isaiah's example to honestly confess your sin. Honestly confess your sin. So let's see how this plays out. Look again at verse 5. Isaiah has just finished describing this theophany, this appearance of God before his eyes, and then he states, woe is me. So you see how his attention shifts from having seen God to now reflecting on himself. And what he says about himself is, woe is me. 
Now, this kind of phrase isn't one that we use a lot, but you may have heard modern Jews or maybe even other people use the Yiddish phrase, oy vey. That's quite literally what Isaiah says here. Yiddish is a more contemporary version of ancient Hebrew, but the old phrase was actually oy li. But over time, the language evolved, and now Jews say oy vey. It's a phrase that they might use when you stub your toe or you get into a fender bender. Oy vey! It's a way of saying, I am doomed. I am cursed in light of what I've just experienced. I am in big, big trouble. Isaiah continues, Woe is me, for I am lost. The King James translates this phrase, I am undone. The word can also be translated to be cut off or to perish. So the range of meaning is decently broad, but however you translate it, lost, undone, cut off, perishing, it is all negative, right? Isaiah's assessment of himself is not positive. Woe is me, for I am lost. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, has a chapter on Isaiah 6, and he writes this in that chapter. He says, as long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. But the instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed. Morally and spiritually annihilated, he was undone. He came apart and his sense of integrity collapsed. And Isaiah just continues confessing about himself in the rest of verse 5. He says, woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So now Isaiah gets a little more specific. He's not just saying, I am cursed, I am lost, generally speaking, but he says what it is that he's done to bring him to this conclusion about himself, and it's his words. It's the way he's spoken. Now, this is curious, why the focus on the mouth and the way one speaks? Well, we know from Isaiah's other, pro- uh, other prophecies to the people that they had many other more obvious sins. So why does he focus here on confessing the sins of his mouth? Well, it could be a few things. Maybe it's because Isaiah has just heard the angels singing, praising God with their mouths And the idea is, man, I nor the rest of my people, do we praise God like that? Compared to their passionate, powerful worship of God, we are a people of unclean lips. Another possibility is that Isaiah was preparing to be a messenger for God, right? He was preparing himself to speak for God. And so in this moment of his calling to be a prophet, maybe it's that he's specially aware. Man, wait, God... You're calling me to be a prophet? How can I speak for God when I'm a man of unclean lips? Another possibility is simply that as Jesus taught later in Matthew chapter 15, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, our words are a reflection of our hearts. So for Isaiah to say, I am a man of unclean lips is an indirect way of saying, I am a man with an unclean heart. I have sin not just on my hands because of the things I've done. I have sin not just in my mouth because of the things I've said. I have sin all the way down in my heart. 
Well, having glimpsed the holiness of, and greatness of God, Isaiah now sees himself and then he confesses. He brings the truth about himself to the light. I am cursed, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips. In Luke chapter 5, another one of God's spokesmen has one of these experiences, namely Jesus' chief disciple, Peter, who would later become the great apostle. This is from early on in Jesus' ministry. And let me just read this story from you. And it's helpful to know that Peter here is mostly referred to as Simon. Uh, Jesus hadn't yet renamed Simon Peter yet. But this is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Luke writes, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and Jesus saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of the boats and were washing their nets. So getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Jesus asked Simon to put out a little from the land, and Jesus sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when Jesus finished speaking, he said to Simon, Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered Jesus, Master, we toiled all night, and we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. The other boat came and filled both their boats with so many fish that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For all who were with Jesus were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So you see the parallel here between Isaiah's experience and Peter's. Just like Isaiah, Peter senses the power and authority of Jesus. He calls him Lord. Just like Isaiah, Peter then confesses, Oy vey, cut me off, depart from me. I am a sinful man, Peter says. Just like Isaiah, Peter is suddenly, brutally aware of himself. Seeing Jesus enables him to see himself and he responds by confessing. I am a sinful man. I am a man of unclean lips. So friends, the question is, have you had an experience like this? Having considered the greatness and holiness of God, have you been shocked by who we are before him? Undone, unclean, broken, sinful. Like Isaiah, like Peter, have you had that almost scary experience of truly sensing how lowly we are before God? The light of his glory and holiness exposes who we really are and we cannot hide anymore. We cannot pretend anymore. We are broken. We are unclean. We are needy. We do not have it all together. We are undone before him. Own it for yourself. Like Isaiah, like Peter, let's confess the truth about who we are before God. 
How do we respond to who God is? Honestly confess your sin, and secondly, humbly receive sin's atonement. Humbly receive sin's atonement. So after Isaiah acknowledges the truth of his sin and his uncleanness before God, here's what he says happens next, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And the seraph touched my mouth with the coal. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So imagine Isaiah's internal experience here. He's feeling shame, dreadfully aware of his sin as he is. He must have felt a sense of shame and there's a mental anguish and desperation that seems to be present in his words of confession. So what's going to happen next? Will he be incinerated by the fire of God's holiness? Will he be consumed by the flames of God's justice against his sin? Well, according to Isaiah, he deserved to be. He had said, woe is me, I am cursed, I deserve justice. But amazingly, graciously, one of the angels, one of God's messengers, takes a glowing, fiery coal and sears Isaiah's lips. And then the angel with divine authority declares, your sin is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Because God's fiery holiness could have devoured Isaiah, but instead it cleanses Isaiah. For not only is fire good for destroying things, it can also purify or cleanse things. You think of what we call a controlled burning of a forest. Fires can cleanse the forest of underbrush and overcrowding that happens at the bottom of it, eventually allowing the forest to flourish even more because fire is certainly capable of consuming an entire forest but it's also able to cleanse it and enable it to flourish even more than before. And so it is with the fire of God's holiness and righteousness. Isaiah's sin is consumed by God's wrath and justice. God does not say here, oh, Isaiah, no big deal. Don't don't beat yourself up. Your sin is not an issue with me. Don't be hard on yourself. No, God takes his sin very seriously. Isaiah's sin does face a fiery fate, but not in a way that totally destroys Isaiah. Instead, Isaiah is spared. He is cleansed. His sin is atoned for. His sin is punished, but not in a way that destroys Isaiah. That's what atonement is. It's when our crimes are penalized, but it's not us. Who face the penalty. Instead, an atoning act takes place on our behalf. In this case, it's a blazing coal that burns away Isaiah's sin, and yet Isaiah is still intact and able to serve God. And friends, the ultimate expression of God's sin atoning purposes is the cross of Christ. On the cross, Our sin was punished. Justice was administered against our transgression. 
The good news is not that God just forgets about our sin. The good news is not that God just sweeps our sin under the rug and says, oh, forget about that. No, the good news is that, yes, God takes our sin deadly seriously. God punishes our sin to the nth degree, but it is not us who face the punishment. Jesus' death is an atoning sacrifice. And so that's why we can have all the confidence in the world that when we stand before the bar of God's judgment, He will accept us. Because our crimes have already been paid for in the death of Jesus. We are cleansed from our sin. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 can declare with all the authority of heaven, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ. You can live with maximum assurance that God will accept you as completely clean before him. Because on the cross, Jesus was burned through with the full fury of God's wrath for all of our deeds of filth. That is the good news. The God of justice is satisfied completely in the death of Christ. And we can live with joyful assurance that we are clean even in his presence. And so like Isaiah, we don't stop short of simply confessing our sin. No, we receive God's gracious provision for our sin. I urge you, friends, no matter how unclean your life is, no matter the filthy things you may have done and said, you put your trust in Jesus, you rely on what he's done to save us, then you will be saved. I encourage you, forsake any self-salvation project. I urge you right now, retire from trying to save yourself through your good deeds, through your acts of kindness, through your generosity, through your showing up at church. Forsake any self-salvation project because the truth is that we can never do enough to satisfy God's demand for justice. Heck, we can't even do enough to appease our own consciences. But in Christ, we can live with the freedom of a cleansed conscience. Our sins are paid for, and there is no need to live before God with the fear of his judgment. I mentioned earlier Peter's story when he had an Isaiah-like response to having witnessed the power of Jesus, in response to what Jesus had done, Peter fell at Jesus' knees. Peter said to Jesus, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. But I didn't share with you what Jesus then responded to Peter with. This is from the very next verse, Luke chapter 5, verse 10. Luke writes, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. In other words, Peter says, Jesus says, Peter, you don't need to fear being a sinner in my presence. And it wasn't because 
Peter's sin didn't matter. It was because Jesus knew that at the end of his ministry, he would offer a full atonement, not only for Peter's sins, but for the sins of everyone who would put their trust in him. So Peter need not fear being a broken man in the presence of such greatness. And then, in the same way that Isaiah is commissioned after he is floored by his vision of God, Jesus commissions Peter. Jesus says to Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus says, having confessed your sin, having received grace for your sin, I am now calling you to be a fisher of men. Now I am calling you to mission, to go and make disciples of all nations, as Jesus put it in Matthew 28. Confessing our sin and then receiving God's grace must propel us into our calling, our calling to bear witness to the gospel, our calling to make disciples, our calling to help other people follow Jesus. That was the end goal for Isaiah's vision of God. Him saying in the next verses that we'll look at next week, Lord willing, here I am, send me. That was the goal for Isaiah's vision of God. And so it is with Peter's vision of Jesus. Him embracing Christ's call to be a disciple maker, a fisher of men. And now church, that same call falls on our laps. Having seen God for who he truly is, having seen ourselves for who we truly are, having been mercifully atoned for in Christ, let's give our yes to the Lord. Let's profess, I will live for you. Your mission is my mission, Lord. So where are you at with that, church? What is the Lord calling you to? Who is the Lord calling you to? Who has he put in your life? How can you be a part of Christ's disciple-making mission? There is no doubt he is calling you. The scriptures bear witness. All of us who are in Christ are empowered for mission by the Holy Spirit. And all of us who are in Christ are commissioned by King Jesus to go and live our lives, whether it's here or across the globe, for his sake. May our response be, here I am, send me. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.